Welcome back if you've been coming. Welcome if you're new. Um, if you've got a Bible, if you'll open up to the book of Acts. Acts, 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 chapter 1. Not Genesis. You'll see why. If you've been coming to the series, it's been basically a study in Genesis 1, has it not? But I, you will see very clearly, I think, why we're going to be here. And that um, situation, the, the uh, skyline situation is actually kind of a perfect bleed-in because we're going to be talking about the birth of church tonight. And so um, if you've got your Bible, cool, open it up, even if it's a fake one on your phone, if you need one. uh, We've got some Bibles in the back. I'm sure Micah can grab one. I find that like on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, like 99% of people have their Bibles. But if you're part of the 1%, you know, you can raise your hand, no shame in your game. Um, We'll get you one. And tonight we are going to probably read the entire chapter of um, the second chapter of the book, so you definitely want to have um, Bible ready because I, I want us to just kind of read and get washed over, and then we'll talk about some things. I only have like 18 points in this sermon, so we got to get going. Um, and so let me pray while you're opening to Acts 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. I'll pray, and then we'll get going. Jesus, just um, mindful of of Pastor Pete and, and the new work going on in um, Thousand Oaks and, and uh the fact that our church was once involved in that location and that we're still involved in that location, just pray that you would um, provide grace and mercy um, and, and calm as, as a new um, church springs forward, as a, as a new ministry springs forward. And so just pray your hand would be all over that. We pray your hand over the study tonight as we take a look at the birth of church um, and your calling on us as a faith community distinct from all the others. And so I just pray that you would, um, Holy Spirit, that you would wash over us, that you'd wash over me. Um, that you would enable me to teach, that you would enable all of us to learn, not so that people would see us, but that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So, Jesus, be glorified. We love you, praise you. Can't wait to see you again. Amen. So, just by way of quick recap, we're in a series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. That comes out of Matthew 6, where Jesus is discipling his disciples and is teaching them about prayer. And he's really teaching them about the heart of God. And he teaches them through showing them a model prayer. He says, in this manner, pray. And so he gives them a, a, a basically a perfect prayer, not to be repeated mindlessly like a drone, but to, but to open up the heart that we should have as we pray before God. And so the model prayer in Matthew 6 begins like this. It says, in this manner, therefore pray our Father in heaven. And so it's very relational, it's familial, and yet it's also entirely spiritual because he says he's like a father, but he has ac- you have now access to heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And good praise, good prayer always begins with his glory, not our wants. His glory, he says, ask. We'll get to wants, but it, it starts with his glory. It starts after a heart that seeks his name and his fame first before our own. And then it says, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, not our little kingdom. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done, not our desires and wants. He says, your kingdom, your will be done. And then he says these profound words, he says, on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus shows us that a, that a properly prepared heart before God is pleading, is pleading with God that his perception, that his precepts would be made manifest through us on earth, though as it is in heaven. And so he says, on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's our, as I've said every week, it's our passionate, prayerful plea that God's heavenly precepts and perspectives would be made manifest through us on earth. And in week one, we took a look at the doctrine of the Imago Dei. It says we've been created in the image of God, separate from the animal kingdom, not God, but not animal. And so we're created in his image and likeness in this beautiful tension between God and lower creation. We are submissive to God, yet have dominion over creation. So we're not God, we're not animal, right in between, stamped in his image with a separate calling. Okay, your, your, your dog, you love them to death, but they're not called to reflect God's glory. As part of lower creation, it screams of, of a good creator, but your dog, your cat is not stamped in the image of God, called to something higher in a testimony before a broken world. Okay, they're called to eat, sleep, and do things on instinct. Okay, and so in the Imago Dei, we see that God created us in his image, but we don't worship creation, we worship the creator. In week two, we took a look at marriage, 
The fact that God then created man in his image, male and female, he created them. And he says he brings them together in marriage and then they become one flesh. And now two individuals that are called to worship and reflect God are now called to become one unit that worships and reflects God on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see that God created marriage, but we don't worship marriage. We create the God who created marriage. Week three, we saw family. You add kids in there. It's a beautiful little picture of the Trinity. Functionally submissive, all, all equal in the eyes of God in terms of value and worth. But we see that the wife has a separate role than the husband. The children has a separate role from the, the wife and the husband. And so functionally submissive, just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally God, yet functionally submissive. Only Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Doesn't make him less God. Doesn't make the father more God. It just means that they were distinct in their roles. In the family, we see that the husband is the head, which reflects as Christ is the head of the church, that wife is helper, which reflects the Holy Spirit who calls himself a helper, come to glorify Jesus. We see that the children are called to be submissive. And so you see this beautiful work in the family. We saw that God created family. We don't worship family. We worship the God who created family. Last week, we took a look at work. We took a look at this call. We took a look at the fact that unlike what we often feel on Monday mornings, like, man, this is the result of sin. To go to the office, you open up Outlook, you're like, this is clearly the work of a fallen world, right? Boss was emailing you on Sunday night, right? But we see that work was given before sin. There's only two perfect men that have ever walked the earth, Adam and Jesus, and they both worked. They both were. Jesus didn't have to. I told you, if I wrote the book, he would have showed up in a purple robe as king. Jesus would have just showed up like 33-year-old just yelling at everyone, right? He came as a baby. He lived, he worked, he apprenticed. He ran a business with his dad. People are like, it doesn't say that in the Bible. There wasn't much to write about. He just went to work for 18 years, right? No one's writing a book about your job, are they? Right? Like, not much going on, right? And so we see that, that Jesus worked. We saw that Adam was called to work, that Eve was called to be his helper, but work was pre-sin, And so we see that God himself works, therefore we work. We don't worship work. We worship the God who created work and we worship God with our work. And that was last week. And so as we were joking, we've been in Genesis um, pretty much the whole series because that's where those were created, okay? But now we're gonna fast forward into Acts because as I said last week, tonight is gonna be on church and this is where church, the Christian church, Jesus's church was born. Okay. And, and real fast, I want to get really, I want to get really made meta before I get micro. Okay. Going to do the inverted pyramid, going to go real big up top, but then we're going to come down to some very fine tuned specifics. Real big. There's only three epochs. Everyone know what an epoch is? Just a, a time of a, a time period, a time frame. There's only Three epochs in all of earthly human history. Earthly human history. Eternity, another thing, but that's not even an epoch, okay? That's just forever. It'll always be. There's only three epochs that have established all of humans for all of time. And in relation to God's people, it sounds like this Israel, church, and 144,000. The Old Testament, God's people were known as, called as, set apart as what? Israel. Jesus came, lived as a Jew, practiced as a Jew, was born under the law, the Bible says, but then ushered in a covenant, which the Bible says is better than the old one. Have you ever thought that? You like, you read through the New Testament and you don't want to say it out loud. You're like, New Testament is way better than the Old Testament. You ever thought that? You're like, I would I just, I wouldn't do the Old Testament. I praise Jesus every day. I wasn't born in the Old Testament. Every day. By the way, the Bible says that's okay. It's okay to read the New Testament and go, dang, this is better. Bible says he ushers in a better covenant, right? Thank goodness. Like no goats to be slaughtered tonight. Okay. Anyone else with me on that one? Anyone like bacon? Like not in the Old Testament. Yes. By the way, my, my soccer team, my U10 soccer team, we voted on our, our name last night. We went through four different names, blind voting, whittled it down to three, whittled it down to two. Last two voted five to two. Our name this year is the Baconators. <laughs> Had nothing to do with it. My little boy wanted the volcanoes, right? We're maroon. Our jerseys are maroon with white strips on the side and black shorts. You ever seen a piece of bacon? Kind of maroon down the middle. It's got those fatty strips on the side. And if you chart a little too much, it's got black at the ends, right? 
this kid, Elijah, stands in front of the jerseys. He goes, this looks like bacon, right? <laughs> Old Testament, no bacon, so, right? I, I stayed there for a little while, I'm sorry. But like, Old Testament, no bacon. New Testament, bacon, okay? It's better. And so in the Old Testament, there was Israel. Jesus came, ushered in a new covenant. Now there is the church. Okay, I won't get into it, but in Revelation, you're gonna see God's people. So if, if the church is then raptured, in the Old Testament, it says the Holy Spirit was put into the hearts of the Israelites. And then now we see that the church is now indwelled with the Holy Spirit. The church leaves. There's absolute chaos. It's like a Spielberg movie on steroids. And the Holy Spirit comes and he signs and he seals 144,000. Now, Israel pushed through the Old Testament pointing to what? Jesus. The church now moves through human history, including tonight, pointing to what? Jesus, right? The church goes. Then in the tribulation, 144,000, they're, they're not Jehovah's Witnesses, they're Jews by the biblical definition, okay? 144,000 moved through the tribulation, now signed, sealed, saved by the Holy Spirit, pointing to what? Jesus. All three evolutions, if you will, of God's people has always had one purpose, pointing to the coming of Jesus. And so there is Israel, there is the church, and then there's the 144,000. And so this is where we are. This is the chapter. This is the epoch that we are in, in all of earthly human history, which is the church. The church. And I'm talking about the capital C church. Have you guys heard this distinction? This is not going to be a sermon about what makes God speak different. Okay, we could go through Calvary Chapel distinctives. Chuck wrote a book on it. You can read it. Not, not concerned with that tonight. I'm talking about the capital C church, not the lowercase c churches, which make up the uppercase C church. Does that make sense? There is one church with many churches, but there is one capital C entity that is Jesus's church. And make no mistake, Jesus created his church, not man. You hear that? Well, religion is just a, a, a construction of man, not the church. Immediately we separate. Buddhism was started by what? A man. Hinduism was started by what? A man. Islam was started by what? A man. You can go on and on and on and on and on. And I can take you to each one of their graves and show you where their bones lay. As we're going to see in chapter 2. There's no bones for Jesus. Trust me, you would know if they found them. You would know. The world is aching to find those bones, but they can't. So make no mistake, Jesus created his church. And make no mistake, Jesus is the head of his church. Perhaps my favorite chapter in the Bible, dare I say, Colossians 1, says this in verses 16 through 18. For by him all things were created. So does church exist under the umbrella of all things? Yeah. So Jesus created all things. People are like, he didn't make that chair. No, the chair was assembled from things that were already created. Humans have never created anything in raw form. We've just assembled that which has been created. We assemble things. We don't, from nothing, create things. So it says, all things, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. If you find something that doesn't exist in heaven or earth, let me know. Okay? So that is saying, all things... Again, visible and invisible. If you know of anything that's either not visible or visible, let me know. Okay, so he's saying what? All things, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him. That's Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church. One church. Big church, under which God speak is a part. Under which Emmanuel Presbyterian down the street is a part. Under which Lighthouse is a part. Under which Calvary Community is a part. Little C churches, but he says, He is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That just means he was the first one to resurrect, by the way. People are like, no, what about Lazarus? No, he was resuscitated and died again. Jesus was the first one to resurrect, to never die again. So he is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, all things, he may have preeminence. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. If you still don't believe me, Ephesians 5.23 says, For as the husband is the head of the wife, we've gone over this, 
as also Christ is head of the church and the savior of the body. So we have three questions that we want to answer tonight. On earth as it is in heaven, church edition. Okay? Three questions we want to answer. Number one, is Jesus' church distinct from all other faith communities? Everyone goes, oh, so the next two presuppose the answer yes. Why is Jesus' church distinct from all other faith communities? Gets a little tougher. And then how, which is a different question in my opinion, how is Jesus' church distinct from all other faith communities? So is Jesus' church distinct? Why is Jesus' church distinct? And how is Jesus' church distinct from all other faith communities? And what I should say again is that this is not a denominational distinctive message. I grew up Lutheran. We could do it all day. I've lived on mainline Protestantism. Now I'm part of non-denominational denominationalism. Like we're like the biggest non-denominational denomination. You know, like it's crazy. Everyone's like, I'm just non-denominational. But there's like a 1500 year churches. At some point, you're kind of a denomination. No, we're the non-denominational denomination. Okay, I get it. All right. So I, I'm not talking about denominational distinctives. What I want to take a look at is the characteristics that marked the first century church that transcend doctrinal differences, differences in teaching, differences in doctrine, which the Bible allows for, by the way. Secondary issues you can disagree on. Do we do adult-only baptism? Do we do child baptism? I know some of you are like, no, that's a non-issue. Not, not in the primary essentials. There's five things in the Bible. We're not going to go over tonight that the Bible says you're dead if you, believe, you don't believe these things. It's a separate message. I've done it. Five things. It says if you believe or you don't believe one of these five things, you have fallen from grace, the Bible says. Infant baptism, not one of them. Verse adult baptism. Okay? Even female pastors versus non-female pastors, which we've got a very clear line on, taught on it. Okay? But those are secondary issues. They're not primary essentials. And so again, I want to take a look at characteristics that marked the first century church at its birth. Because that's what we've been doing, haven't we? We've been going to where something was created and saying in that moment, there's a lot because after Acts, there's a ton of books. Look, there's probably 487,000 things that, that, that caused Jesus's church to be distinct from all other faith communities. But I want to take a look at one to two chapters and say, but at its core, at its birth, from the moment it hit the ground, this is why it's different. Does that make sense? So we're going to Acts because that's where it was born and so if you haven't studied Acts, we'll do a quick overview. I want you to kind of know a little bit of the heart behind it. Anyone know who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. And Luke wrote what other book? Luke. Okay. But I was not that hard sometimes. Okay. So with Luke and Acts combined, did you know that that's the majority of the New Testament? Okay. Luke, not an idiot. Anyone know what he did for a living? Doctor. Doctor. Yeah. So people are like, oh, Bible's for simpletons and doctors. Okay. And so, and he, and the beginning of this book says the, at the former account, I made O Theophilus all that Jesus had began to do and teach. And so he was commissioned by a very rich man to go investigate the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay. He wrote Luke and then he wrote Acts, which as I said, is the majority by content volume wise of the new Testament. And so Luke was a physician commissioned by Theophilus to investigate Jesus's life. The book of Luke, listen, I want you to see this. It's going to be my first big point of 18, okay? The book of Luke describes Jesus giving us his life, yeah? It's the gospel of Luke, that Jesus came and that he what? He gave. So Luke shows Jesus giving us his life. Acts describes Jesus giving us his power. You need to see that. Luke's about Jesus giving us his life. Acts is about Jesus giving us his power, his mission, his ministry. Jesus in John 16, 7, I've told this story before. I had, I had my, my college pastor when I was in college a long time ago, okay, um, wrote a book called Better Off Without Jesus. Okay. I worked at Barnes & Noble for a summer while I was trying to hook and jab as an intern and get my first corporate career. Okay, working all morning at that gig, then going to Barnes & Noble till midnight. And we used to have to go in and they're like, hey, the Christians turned the book again and go fix that. I'm like, ah! 
Go turn in the book around. What is it? What does it say? Turn around. Better off without Jesus, Chuck Bomar. And all these Christians come, oh, that's ridiculous. I hate the title. Do you know who he was quoting? If you look real close on the cover, there's a little M dash and it says Jesus. Because what did he say? He goes, it's to your advantage that I go away. He goes, hey, guys, this has been fun and all. It's actually going to get better. It's better that I leave, Jesus says. And so Chuck writes a book called Better Off Without Jesus, quoting Jesus, taking Jesus' ministry, the continuation of his power, seriously. And Christians are going in there, yeah. relax, people. Listen to the, like, read the lead, red letters, okay? It says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, capital H, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Functional submission. Jesus said, I came to do the will of the Father. Now Jesus leaves and says, the, Father, the Holy Spirit will come to do my will. Now I will send him. Functional submission. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, and Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And so submission goes up and down. And so we begin, Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. Because here's the thing, as we're going to see, his ministry was not ending. And so look with me in, in Acts 1. We're just going to go through the first 11 verses and we're going to jump to chapter 2. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day which he was taken up. Do you know what he just said? He said, Those 33 years is what they call the beginning. This was not the end of Jesus' ministry. Luke just said that was just the beginning. So a lot of us think like Jesus's ministry ended and now we're just waiting for him to come back. Right? No game plan. Cross happened thousands of years ago. Revelation ain't here yet. So just sit, hunker down and wait. He says, no, all that Jesus came to do and teach, it just began. That was the start. He says, until the day which he has taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given the commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen See, whereas the book of Luke describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the book of Acts describes the continuation of Jesus' ministry. This must radically transform your mind. That Jesus' ministry did not end, it is continuing. That's it. The church is to be the continuation of Jesus's ministry. Good? All right, let's pray. No, so it, like, that, that's, that's, that's it before we get into it. I'm gonna prove it like 15 times over, I pray. But that's it. If you miss that point, the rest of the sermon's null and void. You can check out, get on your phone, Instagram, do whatever you wanna do. But, but if, 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 that, if that stirs in you an affection, a call, a challenge, as it should, that this is not the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the continuation of Jesus' ministry and that the church is called to be the continuation of Jesus' ministry. It has every implication for every aspect of your life. Every implication. But how? So the question is, how? And so we read on, verse three, he says, to whom he also presented himself Alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. I got a couple. The tomb was um, empty. The tomb was open. The tomb was empty. Yes? Yeah. Infallible proof. Again, I, I can take you to every gravesite of every world religion founder. Just Google images it. They're there. You don't have to travel. No plane ticket needed. They all exist and their bones are in the ground. Not Jesus's. And if they found them, you would know. The world would not let you go to the bathroom without telling you, okay? The tomb was open, it was empty. Jesus had breakfast with people in town. You wanna know how to prove people you're God? Die and then have a fish sandwich with them the next day or four days later, right? That's how you prove. And Jesus's half brother didn't even believe he was God until Jesus came back. He's like, we should have breakfast. You were dead. And then he worshiped his half brother, as God. Infallible proof. He showed his scars and doubters like Thomas turned and believed. He gave people hugs, right? Simple. 
These are the infallible proofs. Christianity is alive for one reason, because Jesus is alive. The church should be alive for one reason, because Jesus is alive. Christianity is alive because Jesus is alive. The church should be alive because Jesus is alive. If Jesus is dead, I quit. I quit. Not just being a pastor, not just preaching. I'll quit the whole thing if Jesus is dead. But he's alive. So it says this, so that he, by many infallible proofs being seen, again, verse three, during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, verse four, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's how. How are we alive? How do we receive? How do we transition? How do we continue? By baptism of the Holy Fire, or by baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they account, uh, kind of like being baptized in fire. It wasn't really that much of a slip. It says, for John truly baptized by, with water, which we're going to get to, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about something else, not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him. So you got to remember what's happening, that Jesus had died, and then he rose, and some of them didn't believe, so he proved it, and then he hung out for 40 days, and they're like, he's back. It's going to get better. This is amazing. Like, they saw their Savior slaughtered. They had been following him. He was dead. And by the way, he absolutely died. It was not a trick. He died. And they were scared and they scattered and they hid and then he came back and now they're excited. But he starts to talk about leaving again like he did even during his ministry. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the seasons which the father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he's, he's, they're like, oh, 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 are we going to do the kingdom thing? Can we get to finally be kings? He says, hold on, hold on, relax. You're going to get power, but it's going to be from the Holy Spirit. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and to Judea and the Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Everywhere. In your workplace, in Thousand Oaks, in California, in America, and around the world. This is when you receive the power, you will be a witness of him in all places. And in the Greek, the word, you've probably heard this, is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. By the way, no one questions what happened when dynamite goes off. I was in Iraq the first time we got attacked. We got a call the night before that they had executed a religious leader in one of the, one of the mosques in the heart of town. And they do that for two reasons, to square, scare the people and to draw in the Americans. You kill a leader, you know that we're going to follow up. So We did. Just a couple weeks in Iraq, called my wife. She'll tell you. Say, hey, can't tell you where we're going, but I love you. What does that mean, Mark? What does that mean? Like, I got to go. Got to go. So we got in the cars. The next morning, early, before sun came up, Humvee, we rolled out. Little fight took place. We went left. Skirmish, small guns. We came back. Got back on the main drag. We're headed into an intersection. My tail gunner, Mikey, Bear, he's now LAPD, Taps me with his left foot. I'm a driver on the shoulder. He says, I pee on the right, which means Iraqi police is coming up on my right so that I don't get scared or anything like that as a driver. So he taps me, left foot. He's up there in the machine gun. He says, I pee on the right. I said, Roger. IP comes from my right, pulls in front of me. We enter the intersection. A car comes in and a guy flips a switch. He had packed his entire trunk full of two things, dynamite and gravel. And for a split second, if you've never seen or been near something that big, for a split second, everything goes entirely quiet. Because the, the repercussion of that bomb is actually sucking the wind. It's sucking all the oxygen. For a split second, there's a vacuum. And so a bomb actually sounds like, like that. It's not just an explosion. It comes in and everyone knows and your heart stops. And then... And my, my gunner didn't say, hey, what happened? What was that? No one questions when dynamite has gone off. They know. And things are never the same. We weren't the same as Marines. Our tactics adjusted. Our patrol tactics shifted a bit. That marketplace was never the same. That 
mosque, when dynamite goes off, things change and they never go back to the same. They don't look, they don't feel, they don't smell, they don't equate to the same things as before dunamis. And the world would never be the same. Now that the church has been born of this power, not a militant power, but a heavenly power, this is the transferring of Jesus' power to his people via the Holy Spirit, which empowers the continuation of his mission and his ministry. It means that Jesus' life and power is not just to be admired, but to be experienced. Jesus' life and power is not just to be admired, it's to be experienced. And perhaps that's where some of us are today as Christians. We admire what Jesus has done, but we haven't experienced what he's doing. And that's tapping into the Holy Spirit that wants to give you that power. Not so that you can rule over people, but so that you can reflect the one who rules over all. It means Jesus is not just an example for us. It means that he himself empowers us via the Holy Spirit. And I love this part. I can't, I can't leave chapter 1 without reading 9 through 11. Because you've got to imagine that this is all these guys have wanted after following Jesus. All they want, restore the kingdom to Israel. It's what they want. They're begging for it. And, Jesus, and they're like, are we going to do that now, Jesus? Like, it's 40 days. Like, let's get this game going. And he's like, you're going to receive power. It's better for you that I go. And they've got to be like, not again. Right? Don't leave us again. Don't do this again. These are hostile times. They're, they can't run to their local church. There isn't a church. They're, they know that they're not faith Jews anymore, so they're ostracized. They know they're certainly not secular or Roman or anything like that, so they're completely ostracized following him. He's like, I gotta go again. And it says this, Now when they heard he had spoken these things while they watched, as he was taken up, a cloud received him right out of their sight. Now this is before balloons. If you, if you don't see the humor in the fact that Jesus is like, and he just gets out like people, they never see, there's no blimp, there's no, there's no planes, there's nothing, they've never seen anything. There's just people that can jump a little bit, you die and you go into the ground. And, Jesus, and they, they've never seen a balloon go up. We've done that since we were four, like, helium, uh, right? And Jesus just, you get a gangster exit, right? He gives a gangster entrance in Rev 19, right? Okay. And so he just starts to leave. I check, the guys are just stunned. They're, they're broken. They're confused. They're probably a little mad. Like just, he's doing it again. And they're staring. I love this. And it says, and while they were looking steadfastly toward heaven, he went up, behold, two men, these are angels, stand by them in white in peril. So two homies show up and they're like, look at these guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're just, Two angels, like, look at these guys. I love these guys. Earthly people. That's crazy. Never seen that before. Wait till they get a hold of planes. That's crazy. Right? Who said, men of Galilee? You know, they're like, what? What the? Where'd you come from? Weird. Like, you know, two guys just. You got to giggle at the Bible. I don't know what version you're reading. It's ridiculous. You guys have the boring Bible, I guess. He says, you too are standing, gazing up into heaven. The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. There's always a promise. There's always a promise with Jesus' exit. There's always a promise. And so, work over to chapter two. Let's see how fast we can machine gun this. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, this is the descending of the Holy Spirit. I love this. What you're going to see is this. You're going to see the disciples start to get bold. Okay, Peter denied Jesus in front of a teenage girl. Suddenly gets very bold. Starts telling entire religious communities that they killed God. Love that. Jesus comes, everything changes. Right? The weak get spines. The strong get humble. Jesus changes everything. Okay? You're going to see the crowd think that they're drunk. Like these guys are off their rocker clearly stumbling out at that bar. Peter, really? The dude with the little girl, right? So you're going to see the Holy Spirit come. You're going to see the crowd mock them as drunk, and you're going to see Peter launch into an epic sermon. Epic 
sermon. Jesus just left. Angels are like, homie, get to work. He's coming back. Do your thing. The Holy Spirit comes and now everything changes. Dynamite hits the earth. Heavenly dynamite has come and it has exploded on earth and the world will never be the same. And so it sounds like this. Am, am I cool to just read the Bible? Because a lot of us just didn't do it this week anyways, right? So it's good to have someone else do it for you, right? No one's, no one's pumped on that joke. All right, so... I'm not going to not guess. (laughs) When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave him utterance. See, see, God wasn't going to be, God wasn't freaked out about the language barrier. He's like, don't worry, I'm going to fix that from day one. Just gonna be, oh, I, I don't know what they're saying. God's like, oh, you'll know what I'm saying. I'll give them all the tongues. No one's going to be, oh, I, just, I couldn't understand. What did he say? I don't speak this. I don't know. And he comes in, he says, yeah, that gift comes. That gift, that, that gift goes. No one gets to say, oh, I didn't understand. So he gave them the tongues. He says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues and the Spirit gave them utterances, verse five. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you don't like diversity now, you're gonna hate heaven. If you don't like diversity now, you're gonna hate heaven. It says, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. There was confusion, why? Because the apostles were no longer broken. They were no longer separated by this language barrier. God can do what he wants when he's chasing people. It says, they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, these are not all the men who speak Galileans. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? A bunch of names that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Keeps going on and on and on. Cretans and Arabs in verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues and wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking them, saying they are full of new wine. That's the good stuff. Not two buck chuck Trader Joe stuff. This is like the legit stuff. This is the real deal. It's the stuff Jesus produced after they had already drank all the crappy wine at the wedding. He came in, gave them that good stuff. Okay, some of you don't like that because you're legalists. Sorry, it's in the Bible, deal with it. Okay, and so it says, look, look, they're full of new wine. These guys are drunk. Drunk is not cool, but wine's fine. Okay, Bible says so, right? But they're like, these guys are clearly off their rockers. But Peter, like, dude, like just fresh off, like having a tussle with a 12-year-old girl. Like, I, I, I don't, Sally, go, I don't know, Jesus. I don't, I don't see what you're talking about. I, I don't know. And Peter stands up. Holy Spirit's come dynamite. Nothing's the same. Stands up not of his own power. Not because Peter's awesome. He's proven he's not. I've proven I'm not. He stands. And he goes like this. He raised his voice. That's why I'm not afraid to yell in sermons, by the way. Throw some of you off. It's biblical, okay? Any problems with that? Take it up with the Bible, all right? You get a little too loud. So did Peter, right? Raised his voice. No amplification, no theater, no mic. He got big. He got loud. Dynamite hits. Nothing's the same. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words for these are not drunk. He just addresses that real quick. Like, look, we're not wasted. As you suppose, since it is the third hour of the day, he's like, look, it's, 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 relax, it's noon. Something like that, right? I've been to an IndyCar race, by the way. People drink way earlier than that now. But he was like, Look, it ain't even drinking hour. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes to Joel 2, and I love this. What he shows right away, he's like, we're not afraid of the Old Testament. He goes, you know why? Because the whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And so he goes to the Old Testament, and he preaches out the Old Testament. Love that. So he goes to Joel 2, go down to verse 22. He goes ripping through Joel. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. But that was a part of God's purpose, by the way. God came up with the idea of the cross before man had even invented it. He said, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. I love this, Peter, right? 
I love broken Peter before that girl because that's me sometimes too. And I like bold Peter that gets, he gets in a little mix with the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing? He's going big because it's not of his power. It says, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Go down to verse 29. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. I love that. They must have been like, oh, don't talk about David like that. Don't talk about the president like that. Don't talk about the pastor like that. He goes, you know what, you know where David is? In a tomb. Bones in the ground. David ain't freaked out about it. Y'all are freaked out about it. And he says this, he says, his tomb is with us to this day. Go find any major world religion founder. You can find their tomb and their bones. They're in the ground. Peter knows it. He preaches it. He goes, they're all in the ground. Even David, who we beloved, beloved man of God in heaven, serving faithfully, for sure. He's in the ground. He's dead. He says, therefore, being a prophet and knowing, verse 30, that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to his flesh, he would rise up, raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Then this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Jesus is alive. Verse 33 says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. If you've ever been moved by anything I've taught, by anything Brett has taught, anything that Rob has taught, anything that Zach has taught, that James has taught, that John has taught, if you have learned anything, if you've been impacted, gripped, ripped from hell, sanctified, it is not from us. And it frees me as a pastor. The Holy Spirit uses the preaching. And so it is his power that affects you, not me. It's not me. And Peter declares it. He says, you know what you're seeing right now? Dynamite. For David did not ascend into the, into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel and assuredly that know that assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? That's pretty bold. Hey, y'all killed him. And God made him Lord in Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Anyone eating corn on the cob? Just been like, it's just wicked hot, but you got to get into it. So what do you do? You score it, right? I grew up in the Midwest, just scoring corn like it was a hobby, right? And you would, you would score all the way down that line. Some of you never learned that. That's why you burn your tongues, okay? You don't score it out here? Is that not a West Coast thing? No wonder y'all are a little weird. All right, and so, so it's a lot better. Then all the inside comes out a lot faster. Oh, man, you guys got to learn some stuff from the middle of the country, right? And so we, 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 we would score down all those kernels right down in the line. What that does is it opens it up, and it receives air, and it breathes, and it's receptive, and then you just tear into that thing, Right? But he says, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter at the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. Now he's mimicking someone. Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, people ask me this all the time. How, how do you distinguish who's a Christian? I ask them one question. Are you indwelled with the Holy Spirit? Do you know that being a Christian is not something you, it, it's not dictated by what you believe? the church you go to, your background, your creed, your call, it doesn't matter. Indwelled with the Holy Spirit is the single common denominator that all Christians have, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Sat with the Mormons again. They come over, hang down. And they said, well, I said, you believe I'm a Christian? I said, well, yeah, of course. And I said, first of all, then why are you trying to convert me? But second of all, um, if, if you're a Christian, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, we believe, we believe, we believe. Can you support that? That just believing those things makes you a Christian? Because doesn't Jesus come and say, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. He says, a lot of people talking about me. doesn't mean that you're actually in me. So how do you know you're a Christian? I said, because I'm indwelled with the Holy Spirit. I said, who's the Holy Spirit to you? He said, well, he's kind of an impersonal force. I'm like, oh, yikes. The common denominator. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit. He says, you repent you'll be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That's what creates a Christian. And then the Holy Spirit goes to work and he sanctifies and justifies. He does all sorts of stuff. But that is what a Christian is, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That's it. You find a better definition than that? Let me know. People are like, oh, I believe in Jesus. So do the demons, the Bible says. You believe in one God? No, it'll do well with you. you. You literally have the faith of on par with the demon. Not to belittle you, but the Bible says it. I believe in Jesus as God. They know he's God. They've seen him. 
It's not enough to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. He says, the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord, our God, will call. And with many other words, he just went on. He just keeps going and preaching and preaching and preaching. He testified and he exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. By the way, everyone's like, oh, the millennials, this generation right now, don't worry. Every generation since Jesus left has been a perverse generation. Okay, parents, relax. Okay, right? Kids, be relieved. You're not the perverse generation. We all are, okay? Since Jesus left. People are like, when are the end times? Uh, Since Jesus left, really. What's the perverse generation? Uh, Everyone since Jesus left. Okay? And the ones before that weren't cool either. Okay? God called them whores. Okay? It's true. You guys, you got to read the same Bible I'm reading. Okay? <laughs> I want that for you. Read Hosea. Okay? The whole book, just calling them whores. All right. And so he says, and check this out. He says, then those who were gladly received his word were baptized. And on that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Who did the adding? Holy Spirit. Who builds the church? Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus builds his church. And unless he builds it, we labor in vain, yes? No pastor, I'm not building a church. Rob's not building a church. No, 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 one, no one on staff here believes that we're building a church. We believe that Jesus is building a church and that we're called to steward it. That's it. That's our call. It's not to build it. He says that the Holy Spirit is the one that is building it in the continuation of Jesus' ministry. Verse 42, then they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions in good and divided them among all. Look, these were desperate times. This isn't Christian socialism. This was desperate times. These people had nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. And so they were in one accord, continuing daily, it says, verse 46, in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people see they were affecting everyone even in that area in the first century everyone was being affected why? because dynamite had hit the ground and it says and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved and so God does the saving. But back to our three questions. Is Jesus' church distinct? Why is Jesus' church distinct? And how is Jesus' church distinct? Is it? Yes. Why is it? Because we have the Holy Spirit. And now how? We got, we got the first two? Is? Yes. Any questions? Okay. And then is, why, Holy Spirit, indwell with the Holy Spirit. Look, I could have brought up an article a couple years ago. There was an article about how atheists have begun megachurches. Anyone read that a couple years ago? I read it for the college group at the time. They've started Sunday gatherings. They have inspirational music. They've got screens. They've got a nice ethics speech. They talk about a topic. They have gathering. They have meals. It looks identical. But is there something different? And so is there a distinct nature? Yes. Why, Holy Spirit, but how? Now, there's probably 48. The smarter people in the room will be like, there's way more than you got up here. But I'm doing this to get into an acronym, okay? So I want to get into this acronym if this works. I think I got to press it once, but like basically get it going and then pray that the Holy Spirit show up. Oh, I had it off the whole time. I just turned it back on. Got it. <clears throat> oh, Oh, it doesn't respect the... Never mind. It's supposed to fade in one by one, but it'll be better for your notes. Focus on them with me one at a time. Don't read ahead. Jesus is church. And all the grammar nerds, I have my apostrophe to show possession. Okay, relax. Okay? Jesus is church. Just an apostrophe at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, thank you all. Makes me mad too, I know. Jesus is church. Here's 11 reasons how, based off this chapter that we just read, how the church is distinct. You ready? Number one, J, Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching. Acts 2.14, but Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and he said to them, preaching has been from our birth part of Jesus' church. 
Acts 2.42 says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's the teaching of beliefs. Doctrine's not a bad word. In fact, it's where the French get their word doctor because good doctrine heals. It divides those that are opposed to it, but it heals those that are absorbent to it. And so doctrine heals. It's not a big, bad, scary word, much like repent. We're not afraid to teach the Bible because it was authored, it was penned by man, but it was authored by whom? The Holy Spirit specifically. The Bible tells us it wasn't Jesus, it wasn't God the Father, though as triune God, they are all a part of all, but it specifically says that the Holy Spirit authors scripture. He just used men to pen it. And they're like, well, you know, man wrote the Bible. Yes, but he didn't author it. Wait, what do you mean? And then you get a conversation about that common denominator, Yeah. And so we're not afraid to teach the whole Bible. And you saw Peter, he went Old Testament, yeah? I've done a whole series on how the Old Testament's about Jesus. They had civil law, which pointed to the coming king. They had ceremonial law, pointed to the coming sacrifice. They had moral law that came to that the fact that God would show up and be perfect and holy and blameless and honor his father and mother. And so even in the Old Testament law, which we all think is crazy and chaotic, it all had a purpose. It pointed to one thing, one purpose, and one hero, Jesus. So we can preach out of the Old Testament because it points to Jesus. We can preach out of the New Testament because it looks back on the cross. We can preach out of Revelation because he's still going to be coming back again. So Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching. Number two, emotional worship. Acts 2.43 says, then fear. The, the word properly translates awe. It's like saying you have, you have a, you know, you, you, the beginning of wisdom is, the, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I have friends outside the belief are like, you, you know, you're just this capricious God. You're supposed to fear him. I said, no, it's like me with my kids. Like if my boys are running around, I go, Ethan, Asher, they stop. Why? Because they think I'm going to abuse them? No, because they have a reverence because they know that I've been given a, a bit of sovereignty over their lives at this point. They stop, they're arrested. I've told you this before. I do it on purpose sometimes, even with kind of like a mean voice. I'm like, Ethan, it's like, what? I'm like, love you. He's like, oh, because <laughs> I was just in the room doing something I shouldn't. I thought you caught me, right? And so, but I love, I love to see that. I love to see that arrested. I love to see that, 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 that awe. It's not, he's like, oh, dad's God. But he's like, I got a little bit of fear. Why? Because dad's ushered some, some, some sovereignty over me. And it says, this awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. This is Acts 2.47. says, praising God and having favor with all people. In community, we don't just chase signs and wonders, but we do believe that signs and wonders follow people who are chasing Jesus. You see the difference? We don't chase after signs and wonders. We chase after Jesus and like notice signs and wonders are happening on the way. We're like, that was crazy. Whoa. We're not chasing the signs, but they're happening. Why? Because we're set on Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 4, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. He says, follow me. The signs and the wonders will play out. And so emotional worship, saved church members. You see how I kind of, you're like, yeah, I see what you did with your words to get this acronym to work, okay? So saved church members, Acts well, all this is chapter two for the most part, 38 through 39 says, then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the salvific moment is when you're then indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You're now encased in his sovereignty. He who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. You can backslide. It doesn't mean you've lost the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole debate. Can you, can you fall out of faith? Can you blah, blah, blah. And, well, if you fell out, you were never in. It's not a primary essential just take God at his word. He says, he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. If you're in dwell with the Holy Spirit, I believe he will never lose a fight. By the way, that was not a fight. That was a sacrifice. That was an offering. And so he says, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that's promised to you and your children and all those who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. We are saved individually. I bang the college-age students on this a lot. Young adults need to hear this in a snowflake generation that everyone is unique and you are. Did we not go over that in the Imago Day? Every single one beautifully crafted by Jesus himself. You were saved individually, but you were not saved into individuality. That make sense? You were saved individually and called into community because now God has what? The Holy Spirit added to them. He didn't say, hey, you're saved. You're cool. You're fine. Stay out there. 
Do whatever you want. Do your Saturday thing. Just me and Jesus time. And I mock that a little bit on purpose because that's what, that's what it's boiled down. I'm just spiritual. I'm not religious. It's just me and Jesus. Well, Jesus and the Holy Spirit say you should be in church. Or you're just trying to get people to a man-made institution. Uh-uh, Jesus created this one. He wants you there. He wants you there for your protection and for the world's good to see this. So you were saved individually, snowflake, but you were not saved to individuality, church, okay? You were called into community. I've been called into community. And so saved church members is a distinct mark of Jesus's church. Under godly leadership, Jesus as the chief shepherd, as our senior pastor, 1 Peter 5, 4, we read on in Acts and in other books that we see elders and pastors and deacons are set up as leadership through the church so that there would be layers of protection, layers of authority, layers of functional submission to reflect the God who is functionally submissive in a trinity. Doesn't mean you're any less. It just means that God has set up protective layers. As the father is over the wife, the wife is over the children. There, there's, a, there's a Christian blogger out there. I don't know if you guys care about Matt Walsh, but he, he posted an article or a tweet of a, a man holding his wife and the wife holding a baby and you're into water about this high. And he said, that's a beautiful picture. He said, the husband protects the wife and the wife protects the child and they're all there and people went ballistic. Dad walking through waters in Houston carrying his wife who's carrying their baby. And he goes, that's the picture of the gospel and the world hates it. But that picture's for all to see. That's God's design, not because she's less than him, but because he values her more than himself. I got chills because that's the gospel. And so under godly leadership, these layers of protection, they take place in the family, they take place in the church. And it's modeled in the Trinity. Sin repenting, Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them, repent. I wonder where he modeled this. I wonder if he had a good teacher. And let everyone be baptized in the name of, this, the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Matthew 4.17, Jesus shows up. This was the first thing Jesus said as a preacher. Did you guys know that? It was the first word out of his mouth. 30 years, growing, living, studying, being in a family, working 18 years. He shows up. He's baptized with the Holy Spirit. He stands up and the first word out of his mouth is what? Repent. Not like the freaks in the protests, repent or die. God hates fags. And those people running around with repentance. So Christians kind of stay away from repent. I imagine, Bible doesn't say, I imagine Jesus smiled. He was so excited that it was no longer about the law. It was about what he was gonna do. He's like, you guys get to repent. You don't have to kill baby goats anymore. He's like, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts 2.40, Peter says, be saved. That we need to be saved. The world is upside down. Repentance is turning from and putting, to sin, putting your sin to death. Turning from your sin and putting it to death. God modeled it on the cross because when Jesus hung there, the Bible doesn't say he looked like your cross. It doesn't say that he became a picture of your cross. It doesn't say he was a pretty good metaphor of your sin. The Bible says that he actually physically became your sin. And what did God do from, what did God do to Jesus? He looked up, he said, why have you forsaken me? God pulled back. He broke fellowship with sin. And what did he do? He put Jesus to death. And so repenting is just looking at your sin and, and, and disengaging the fellowship that you have with it. And then you put it to death. God will never ask you to do something you hasn't modeled for you first. And he treated sin on the cross as we should treat it in our lives sin repenting, communion partaking. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine of fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Matthew 26, 26 to 28 says, for as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Don't worry, it doesn't actually become his body. Jesus also said he was a vine. It didn't mean he was a plant. He also said he was a door, it didn't make him an inanimate object. He says, this is my body. It was symbolism. So we don't believe in transubstantiation that the, the physical bread and wine become his body and blood. But he says, do this in remembrance of me. 
For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. And so in preaching, we hear the gospel. Think about this next communion Sunday. Think about which is Sunday, right? Oh, we're flipping it. Second one. So come this Sunday just for fun. And then, right? and then next one to see the gospel. Preaching causes us to hear the gospel. And then when we come forward and we pick up bread as the body and we take up juice as the blood, we see the gospel in our communion partaking. We have huge generosity. Now all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. It reflects Jesus, who is the most generous giver, who gives us grace and truth and life and righteousness and power. He gives us the Holy Spirit and eternal life. And so in return, we give him our time, we give him our treasures, we give him our talents. We don't worship things, we worship him with our things because we're huge in generosity. Underwater baptism says, then those who were gladly, who gladly received the word were baptized. And that day about 3000 souls were added to them. It's a mark of a new faith. Mark 1, 9 through 11 says, and it came to pass in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan and immediately coming up from the water. He saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if you haven't been baptized and want to be baptized, come up because we're doing that next month. I will personally, Brett will personally walk out into the ocean with you and dunk you. And you will come up. We're still working on the party in heaven thing. We've got to figure that out. But, but you'll at least come up from the, I, we guarantee you will come up. A couple years ago, we had a few that were iffy. We, some bad storm surf, but we got them out, okay? Zuma, yeah, we're going easy. We're going like pretty chill beach break. All right, so. Underwater baptism, regular gathering. So continuing daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple and the breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. We see large gatherings in the temple. We saw small gatherings in the homes and you thought we made up big church services and small groups. Jesus created big church services and small groups. When he birthed the church, they met in the temple and went house to house. Isn't that beautiful? Y'all gave us way too much credit. You gave us way too much. Like, Why'd you guys come up with that model? It's there from chapter one. And so we meet in large groups. Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, saved individually, not into individuality, but exhorting one another as much as you see the day, capital D, approaching. Not D-Day, but it's kind of like D-Day. Jesus comes back, Revelation 19. He says, when you see that coming, you'll want to gather together as like a family reunion before we take off, right? God's desire is for his people to be in community. It's beneficial for Christians and it's beneficial for non-Christians to see Christians gathering. It foreshadows eternity where we will be with Jesus as his people. And finally, so that's community. And finally, harvesting through evangelism. Verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's that they were together. It's that they were causing a favor to be among the people. And in that, God was then adding to the church. And so it's not about Christian cliques. It's about harvesting. The harvest is plenty. The workers are few. And from the church's birth, we see that God works through his people to have an impact on those around him. And then he ushers them into the kingdom. But remember, as I close, church community does not begin with us. Community, Jesus's church begins with him. In the Trinity, there is perfect, holy, continuous community that he calls us to reflect on earth as it is in heaven. But that community, as I said before, was broken one time. Community in the Trinity was broken one time with one purpose. Jesus in Mark 15, 34, hangs from the cross. It says, and at the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As sin, God the Father pulled back. As Jesus became sin, God broke fellowship in this perfect triune relationship for the first time, for the only time in all of eternity, God broke with one purpose that we would be ushered in. And so we hung there and he says, God, why have you gone? And God, the father pulls back and he says, the only way I can bring them in is if I put you down. And so as our sin, he crushes Jesus. He puts him into a grave. He dies, but the grave was meant for sinners. And Jesus sinless, blameless as a spotless lamb could not be held by death. And so he rose. And now there is a a space between perfection and man. There is now a bridge that we can cross if we are but in Christ, the Bible says. And so as his eternal community, as Jesus's church, we are the living breathing declaration that we have been reconciled to God on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, I pray that that this would not be a speech, but that this would be your sermon, that you would cut all of us to our heart as what happened with Peter, acknowledging that it was not of his own power, that if anything happened in the movement of eternity, it was because of you, not because of us. It says, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We were faced the other way and you came and you got us. Those of us that are in you still run and we turn around to find that you chase. You don't ask us to return. You chase us, you grab us. And so Jesus, I just pray tonight that we would be renewed in our mind and in our hearts and our understanding of your purpose for the church. It's not ultimately about us. It's not ultimately about these walls, the the music selection, the lyrics, the screens, the pastor, the pulpit, the carpet, the chairs. That it's a gathering of an eternal community called to be exhorted, to be comforted, to be loved on and cared for as an eternal community proclaiming that we've been reconciled to a holy God. And so Jesus, Holy Spirit, only you can do that. I certainly cannot. And so we rely on you now. I pray we wake up refreshed tomorrow, renewed, not on our mission, Jesus, but seeing ourselves as the continuation of your mission for your glory. Amen.